Hello and welcome to Groove Therapy, a podcast that explores the effects of live music on our brains, bodies, and our lives and provides a space for you, our listener, to learn about how you can bring the magic of live music into your everyday life. My name is Dr. Leah Taylor and I am joined here with my fabulous co-host Tara Lee Weathers. Hi Tara Lee. Hello, I'm so happy to be here and hey everyone out there. Yay, back again for another episode of Groove Therapy. I know, this is number nine, I think, right? Nope. Nope, it's number 10? No, it's number nine. (laughs) This will be number 11. (laughs) No, wait. This will be number number 12. 12. (laughs) Well, that just doesn't explain our year and how we have no idea what day it is, what year it is, what episode it is, then I don't know what does. (laughs) It's so hard to keep track of these things. (laughs) I know. And it's a new year now when everybody hears this because we're time travelers. That's right. Yeah. So we can say that this year is going to be very good. Yeah. 2021. Here we are. (laughs) So our 12th episode is with Jay Blakesburg. And uh, this conversation was so juicy. And I'm just really excited for our listeners to hear everything that he has to say. I don't know how many of you know him, but he is like an extremely interesting person. Besides, you probably have seen his photos, but to know him as a person is such a pleasure. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So should I tell everyone a little bit about him maybe? I think so. Okay. So he is from New Jersey originally, just like I am. And as a young teenager, he began taking pictures with his father's camera at local concerts. So that kind of got him in right away. And when the Grateful Dead performed at the Meadowlands in 1978, that was the first Dead show that he photographed. And pretty much from then on in, he was like, I am in and this is what I'm going to do. And he became an official professional photographer from then on, really like sought after Um, And he, in 1987, he got a call from Rolling Stone Magazine photo editor to go and cover the free U2 concert that happened in downtown San Francisco. And that was his first published photo in the Rock Magazine. And since then, he shot over 300 assignments for Rolling Stone as in, and also has been published in print magazines from Time to Vanity Fair to Guitar Player, as well as hundreds of other major magazines worldwide countless times. He's so cool. So he was constantly shooting for print magazines and record companies. And then when the dot-com movement came to San Francisco, companies were really looking for an edgy look to cover these technology rock stars. And they turned to Blakesburg and his eclectic and original style of photography to do that, which is so cool. So he was in that. I never knew that before. And so I'm always learning new things about the people that I love. And then from then on, he just went on to shoot photos of so many people like Weezer, Fish, Radiohead, DJ Shadow, Tom Waits, John Lee Hooker, Santana, Brian Wilson, Willie Nelson, Metallica, Talking Heads, Beck, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Tom Petty, Dead Hot Workshop, and many others. And then in 2001, he secured a book deal to publish a coffee table book on his Grateful Dead archive. And then after that, it was he found such success that it gave him inspiration to start his own book publishing company, which eventually was born as Rock Out Books. And yeah. so from there, he has like a ton of books, and I'm actually in one of them, and it's called Hippie Chicks. And you can see that there, and he has plenty of other books, and he's done a million other things and shot all the festivals and all the people. And he talks about this in his in our interview of what it was like during the GD50 show and shooting the iconic photo for that. So from going from 1978, that was the first dead show he photographed when he bought, borrowed his father's camera, and then now he's shooting the most iconic photo on stage with all those tens of thousands of people behind them with the band all out there with Trey Anastasio and the members of Grateful Dead. and Which has been replicated over and over and over again. Now I feel like that's the shot that the photographers want to get. And Jay Blakesburg started that all. Yeah, he's so amazing and innovative and creative and passionate and and it just shows in the way that he talks and he's also an amazing storyteller which you'll you'll hear mm-hmm. in the 
the interview, but he does some really cool shows. I saw him in Boulder, Colorado when it was for his book, Hippie Chicks, and it was a slideshow. And then he had stories of every single picture. And it was just like, the pictures were already amazing. But to hear the stories behind the pictures is really special. Yeah, I also saw Jay doing kind of a talk and slideshow in San Francisco. And it was so fun to hear just, you know, all of the behind the scenes stories about his life and how he's really been able to create this career that, you know, he's so passionate about and really came out of this love of live music and and all of the other things that took him on this journey that you guys will hear about in this interview. So if you ever get the opportunity to go and see Jay in one of his slideshow talks, I highly recommend it. And I know Tara Lee does too. And uh, But for now, you guys have the opportunity to hear his stories right here on the Groove Therapy Podcast. I know you're so lucky. Jay Blaisberg and his stories are coming right to your home or your car or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. You're like the luckiest people ever. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so fun. Um, what else? I don't know. I guess, well, people should check out the other podcasts that are on the Osiris Podcast Network that we're on. Um, and you can do that at Osiris Pod. And also, if you go on all the ways that you digest your podcast, you can search Osiris and you'll find all their podcasts there. And there's so many hours and hours and hours of time. So whether you're in your home or you're driving somewhere, you will be endlessly entertained. Yeah, absolutely. And let's give a shout out to Female Centrics, uh, the fish female hosted podcast. Dawn is really amazing of like being an investigative reporter and kind of like right when a story comes out, finding the person and getting the story straight from them. And at the Beacon Jams, there was the whole like Heather McDougal and (laughs) the Heather McDougal song and the amazing nurse that is saving so many people and Trey like writing a song about her on the fly. And so Dawn found her right away and there's an episode with her too. So I'm really excited to listen to that too. It's a little short half an hour one. Nice. Yeah, so definitely go check those out and then see what else you can discover on the Osiris Podcast Network. Yeah, and let us know because we want to know what your favorite podcasts are too. Yeah, absolutely. So, and you can let us know on at our Facebook community, which is the Groove Therapy Podcast Community on Facebook. And you can also check us out on Instagram at Groove Therapy Podcast. And definitely follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you can follow podcasts and leave us a rating or review on Apple if you could. That would be really wonderful. That way other people can find out about us and hear all of these interesting interviews that we've been doing. Yeah. And if you leave a review, we may even read it on the air and you'll get to be famous. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so we'll be right back with Jay Bladesburg. All right, and we are back with Jay. Jay, welcome. We're so happy to have you here on Groove Therapy, and uh, I can't wait to see what this conversation is going to bring because you really have the unique perspective of kind of like what I see is like a bird's eye view of this whole experience of live music happening. And you have so much experience behind you with that. So I'm really excited to dive in into what you have to say and just kind of pick your brain a little bit about what you've experienced over these many years. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's like to be chatting with you gals. Yeah. And I I have the unique pleasure of living in the Bay Area, which is where you live. And and you do a lot of your work, although I know you travel all over the place um, and have had the pleasure of meeting you through live music and watching you do your thing. And I've had the pleasure of watching you do your thing. <laughs> I know what your thing is. I've seen you do that thing. Yes. Yes. So, And that's that's what I love is that you really as you're documenting this in your photography, like you're looking for that thing coming out. So maybe that's a good place to get started. What, what do you look for when you're taking, taking your pictures? So that certainly has evolved and changed over the years. Uh, but nowadays, I, am, I consider myself a visual anthropologist, 
right? So anthropology being defined as the study of humankind, mankind, and I hate that word, mankind, humankind, investigating and learning about tribes, right? And so we are part of this tribe and this tribe that we're part of, which revolves around live music, also happens to revolve around a scene that we'll call this jam band scene. And for lack of any better description, it's a bunch of hippies who probably at one point in their lives got indoctrinated with psychedelic substances and the Grateful Dead. And so that's maybe the starting point. And it's from there, it sort of bloomed and blossomed into this ever-changing, ever-evolving scene that continues to wrap itself around, you know, highly energetic, improvisational, um, psychedelic music from uh, artists that we love. And so when I'm out there with my camera, certainly, you know, with the advent and explosion of the festival world over the last two decades, we'll call it, and I've probably been involved with it maybe for 12 or 15 years of that time, you know, on the festival level. I mean, I've been shooting for 40 plus years. I want to tell the whole story. And that story is pictures of the fans and what's happening on the rail or what's happening in the back of the room when somebody is dancing or swirling or like the photograph that I have of Tara Lee in my hippie chick book where she's at gathering the vibes and, you know, emanating this beautiful energy. When I took that photo of her, I didn't know her. I didn't know who she was. I didn't know what she did. She just had this vibe that I loved. And I took these photographs of her and I think I didn't even know her even when they ended up in the book. I think I found it. I think we met or connected after that, right? So to me, as a visual anthropologist, someone who's documenting this tribe, and, you know, essentially this tribe began in the Haight-Ashbury. I live in San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco because I loved the history of the Haight-Ashbury. I loved the Grateful Dead, and I wanted to be closer to all of that. And you know, ultimately, that's why I'm here, why I've made my whole career in the Bay Area. And so, you know, the psychedelic zeitgeist started in the Bay Area. I just was listening to a Terry Gross NPR interview about a book that came out about Stanley Gottlieb. And he's the CIA guy who basically created the MK Ultra experiments, which is where Ken Kesey, Allen Ginsberg, Robert Hunter, David Nelson, you know, all took psychedelic drugs for the first time. And so, you know, some of those were at Stanford University and some of those were at Menlo Park at the VA hospital with Kesey, where he eventually went on to write One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And, you know, that was this turning point in American history, really global history, because it was such a huge cultural shift when that genie was let out of that bottle. And that rolled over into the Beats and Ginsburg and the Poets to North Beach, to the Haight-Ashbury, to people like me who dropped acid for the first time in 1977 when we were 16 years old, where everybody couldn't believe that you felt like you were still part of the 60s, which were, were done, you know, seven years ago. The 60s ended. I mean, think about that. Nowadays, here we are 50 plus years, you know, in 1977. And I always like to say that it really didn't matter when your mind was blown on psychedelics. It just mattered that you were blown away on psychedelics at some point, right? And so, you know, people thought we were weird that when we dressed the way that we dressed and the way that Tara Lee still dresses today and you, when I see you at shows, and I'm a little bit more conservative, although you frequently might find me wearing purple pants or a purple shirt or something like that. But in general, you know, if you see pictures of me from when I was 18 and 19 years old, I mean, I was wearing purple pants and orange shirts and my hair was like it is today. And, and in 1977 in suburban New Jersey, we were fucking weirdos. Right. And we were outcasts and we were freaks and people thought like, Oh my God, you're, you take LSD. Like, you know, we kept it a secret. Like it wasn't something that we talked about the way we talk about it now where there's, you know, books being written about the importance of microdosing and how it's, you know, help people with depression and it helps help people, you know, with creative breakthroughs in the tech community. And, you know, I'm reading the Steve Jobs autobiography right now and psychedelics were one of the most influential things in his life early on. He had a hugely spiritual life in India and gurus and, and searching for that spiritual side of himself and, you know, created a revolution beyond anything we can imagine. We wouldn't be doing this right now in this technology without Steve Jobs and his psychedelic adventure, right? So nowadays, you know, we can talk openly about it. It's a different wavelength. People approach it differently. You know, I speak about it publicly 
and you know, you guys may or may not know, but when I was 19 years old, I got arrested with a couple thousand hits of LSD and got sentenced to five years in state prison and went to jail for a little bit under a year. And I still believe that psychedelic experience, you know, was the most informative thing in my life. Maybe the most important thing that happened to me in terms of me being who I am, what I do, why I take the pictures that I do, why I interact with the people that I do, and probably why we're talking about this right now on a podcast on your show on Osiris Network, right? I mean, it all kind of goes back to that snow day in New Jersey in 1977, listening to Wake of the Flood while on LSD and being 15 years old or 16 years old. Yeah, that's so interesting and how it all, like, it's all a part of it. And do you think, is that like what you experienced when you have used psychedelics? Is that exactly like how you're able to see the exact person and what they're feeling and the authenticity in it? Because every single person I've ever seen you photograph, it totally, they just have something special about them, what, whatever it is, and it comes out. Is it the psychedelics that allowed you to then be able to see that? I think that those of us who know, know. Right. You know, I like to say that many of us were born with a psychedelic strand of DNA. Right. And once we tapped into that and let that come out, we were our lives were changed. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people out there that were born with a psychedelic strand of DNA, but never took psychedelics for whatever reason and maybe went on a different path. Right. But the people who tapped into that and have those experiences, how can your life have not changed in some way from these incredibly profound moments where you're seeing things in a different way, in a different light than you had ever done before? Yeah. So it's definitely been very influential in your life and how you how you see things and how you see the scene. And I love how you, you call it a tribe because I, I absolutely believe that. And it's interesting now how um, our connection, although we are connected to a larger world, but I feel like everything's kind of been drawn back in. You know, it's like we have to really be intentional or we have the opportunity to be intentional about who we associate with because, you know, of COVID right now. And it's just, I've just been reflecting on how it's an opportunity again to like really come back into our tribes. Yeah. And when we get back out into the real world, you know, I saw you up at Terrapin a few weeks ago, but, um, you know, as a photographer, right. So going back to the anthropology analogy, anthropologists in the 1950s were studying tribes that were discovered in the Amazon that Mm -hmm. were, you know, had only been around, existed for maybe 50 years, right. So as a hippie tribe, as our tribe, I mean, we've been around for more than 50 years at this point, and I've been photographing that experience since the late 1970s, you know, that that subculture, and it's, you know, ebbed and flowed and changed and uh, whatnot. But, uh, you know, for me, again, as a photographer, as a documentarian, I want to try and tell that whole story. And that story, when I first started going to see The Grateful Dead in the late 1970s, you know, I had friends from high school that you start going with. And when we would drop acid, for instance, you know, some of those people were dropping acid because they could drink a case of beer without ever getting drunk. And I was dropping LSD and I was like saying, oh my God, like, wow, there's this whole world out there. How do I get there? How do I explore? And little by little, and I was actually just talking about this with a friend of mine from high school who I recently saw that eventually, you know, I'd start going to shows with my friends from high school and then I'd meet these people in the parking lot. And all of a sudden, I realized that there were like-minded people, people like me. And I was like, oh, well, who are you? And where do you live? And, you know, oh, I live in Westchester. I live on Long Island. Oh, are you going to be at the Philly and the Spectrum in Philly next week? Oh, yeah, I'm going to be there. Great. You know, I'll see you down there. And so eventually, you stop going with your friends from high school. And you're like, hey, why don't I pick you up? And why don't we drive down there together or take the train? Or, hey, do you want to go to Pittsburgh? Yeah. You know, like people that you just met. You have no idea who they are, what their backgrounds are, what their economic background is, what their home life is like. All you know is that you guys both have this affinity, right, or group of whatever for this experience, right? And when we started going to see The Grateful Dead in 1979, right, there were not, you know, the scene as it exists today, or even as the scene as it existed at the end of The Grateful Dead with thousands of people in the parking lot selling grilled cheese and going from show to show, none of that existed. 
there was a handful of people that were going from show to show. You know, in the summer of 1980, when I saw a gazillion shows that summer, you know, there was maybe a hundred people that were traveling on a whole tour. And then people would drop in and they would do like, you know, Philly, Philly, Maryland, or they would go Philly, Philly, New York, Hartford, right? And all of a sudden, again, your tribe just keeps growing because, you know, I might know you, Leah, and I didn't know Tara Lee, but then all of a sudden Tara Lee's with you. And I'm like, oh, she seems cool. She's like me. And then me and Tara Lee become friends. And the next thing you know, I'm like, hey, Tara Lee, do you want to go and get in a car together and drive nine hours to Pittsburgh to see the Grateful Dead? Well, of course you do. You know, so. <laughs> I'm so, in. <laughs> what's that? You're in? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Right. And so that's how this tribe you know, continue to grow. So I'm working on a documentary film about deadheads and the tribe and things like that. And I interviewed this woman who I met when she was 16 years old. Her name is Pam. Uh, we called her Purple Pam because she wore all purple. I met Pam in Pittsburgh in 1979. It was actually my 18th birthday was the show. It was December 1st, 1979. And she had hitchhiked there at 16 years old with two of her friends that she grew up with, um, a guy and a girl. And I and they were like, oh, you're from New Jersey. Can we get a ride back with you? And I was like, and I had just driven there with one other person. So we had my car. I'm like, yeah, of course. And, you know, here we are 42 years later, 41 years later, I guess, exactly 41 years. And we're still friends, right? Like, you know, and I'm friends with probably more people that I met on Dead Tour in 79 and 80 and 81 than I am that I grew up with and went to high school, right? More in touch with those people more connected to those people, right? So again, it comes back to this like-minded thing that really, what is it? It's groove therapy, right? <laughs> I mean, ultimately, right? right? So we grooved with these people. You know, we went through a lot. Some of us didn't make it out. People died. People got caught up in bad drugs. People died of drug overdoses. People ended up poor. People ended up homeless. People ended up with AIDS. And a lot of people are still around. And have children and have had successful lives doing whatever they've done as artists, as massage therapists, as whatever it is that they've decided they wanted to do with their life. And there's so many of those people that we're still connected to. And these people still go to Dead & Co. And they still go to Lockin Festival or High Sierra Music Festival or any other jam band, Peach, Mountain Jam, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so, you know, we continue to stick together as a tribe and because of people like Steve Jobs and because of technology, we're even more connected now than we were like in the 1990s after Jerry Garcia died, right? So in 95, after Garcia died, everybody sort of scattered to the four winds and people, you know, started raising families and getting jobs, God forbid, right? And, you know, people would move to places like, you know, Lawrence, Kansas, or the suburbs in Indiana, or wherever it was, right? And they raised these families, and they always had this little deep, dark, psychedelic, Grateful Dead history. I saw 29 shows in, in 92, or, you know what I mean? And now these people are 55 years old, and they're empty nesters, and they're like, Dead & Co's in Mexico for three nights? I'm going. And all of a sudden, and that all comes back to Fare Thee Well, right? So when Pete Shapiro did Fare Thee Well, it was the greatest family reunion of, of the tribe that had ever happened. All these people that, you know, like we live on the coast, right? So Leah, you're in San Francisco and, and, and Tara Lee's in, in, in Burlington, a little bit more remote than say we are. But here in San Francisco or in the Bay Area, we've got the Fillmore, we've got the Fox, we've got Terrapin, we've got Sweetwater, we had TRI, right? So you know, we have this constant swirl of Grateful Dead. And if you lived in New York or Chicago, you can see Phil Lesh and Rat Dog and Bob Weir and Further and Billy and Mickey and, you know, all this stuff over the years, right? And go to festivals like Gathering the Vibes where I first encountered Tara Lee, right? You're, you're getting this experience. But if you lived in some more remote place in South Carolina or North Carolina or Alabama, wherever, like you might see a Grateful Dead experience once a year, once every three years, once every five years. And all of a sudden they announced Fare Thee Well. And it's like, this is it. This is your last chance to see these four guys play music together. And holy fuck, Trey Anastasio's on guitar, right? So, so everybody comes out of the woodwork who can come. Everybody buys tickets. There's 70,000 people there a day, you know? And all of a sudden it didn't matter if the music was good, bad, or ugly. It was the experience of the tribe being together for one last hurrah to celebrate this experience. And from that, 
this whole thing exploded into dead and go. They play stadiums. They play amphitheaters of 25,000 people. Okay. You know, that wasn't happening for ebbed and flowed over the years and different times. But all of a sudden, everybody realized, holy fucking shit, this is really fun. And I love these people. And these are my people. Do you know how many Facebook groups have sprouted up out of playing in the sand, out of Dead & Co., out of Deadhead Tour fans from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, you know, so on and so forth? I mean, it is so now, this tribe is so connected, to, you know, technologically, electronically, for better or worse. But at the same time, it's allowed all of us to rekindle these, these, uh, these friendships, this family, this tribe. And to just have new experiences because I'm 59 years old. Okay. Think about, you know, my parents at 59 years old, they weren't doing what we were, what what we're fucking doing at 59 years old. You know, yeah, they had their friends and their parties and their dinner parties and go to a show or, you know, on Broadway or a, a movie or whatever. But like, we're flying across country to hang out with a bunch of people who perhaps are taking massive quantities of psychedelics and listen to rock and roll and hope and hope that that experience allows us to touch magic because that is what it's been about since day one. Will we ever get to be allowed to touch that magic? Because back then it was fewer and farther between because it was a different world because the music thing hadn't exploded the way it is now for so many reasons. Right. But once we touch that magic, we know we wanted to do it over and over again. We wanted more and more and more of it. And that's why we continue to chase that Grateful Dead experience, the festival experience, the jam, whatever it is. Because you know what? Back then, when we were 19 years old or 18 years old and we were just flying by the seat of our pants and we had no money or we had a lot of money because we were drug dealers or whatever it was that we were doing, is that once we got a taste of that, we never wanted it to stop. But we were really stupid kids. I mean, I was selling, you know, copious quantities of LSD to my friends in high school in New Jersey, got arrested, went to prison, got out, stumbled into, created this career that I have. But you know what? That adolescent stupidity that we all subscribe to and all the dumb shit that we did, that has led to lifelong magic. We win. Yeah. How would you, I mean, this is a really big question, but how would you describe that music into words to someone who hasn't ever experienced it before? Uh, wow. How do you describe this experience of the music? Well, first of all, you know, there's the old cliche that, you know, they never play the same song twice. Any of these bands, I'm not talking about the Grateful Dead, Fish, String Tease, Mo, Umphreys, Disco Biscuits, you know, Phil and Friends, Dead and Co., the list goes, Twiddle, Pigeons playing ping pong goose the new hot goose um you know it, it goes on and on right so we all love rock and roll and so you might really love the rolling stones and you might say well i'm going to go to five shows on this rolling stones tour now they might not play the exact same set list in the old days the rolling stones would go do a whole tour and play the exact same set list every single night but now bands are mixing it up okay but let's say they might play paint it black in san francisco when they play Paint It Black in Chicago, it's probably exactly the same, right? But when, when Fish plays Down With Disease in San Francisco, and then they play it again in Chicago, it's a completely different experience and a completely different song, right? So again, I think that there's magic in rock and roll no matter where it is, but I think the magic that we get to experience with these artists who are willing to take these risks creatively on stage in a live setting with their instruments in the hopes of creating a different type of magic, it's a much greater reward for us, I think, than the, you know, going to see Elton John on his goodbye Yellow Brick Road tour, you know, farewell tour that I went and saw, you know, for $600 a ticket at the Chase Center in San Francisco, because I love Elton John. Right. But that, you know, and you sing along with every song and, and the visuals were incredible. The videos were awesome, but it still is not the same as going to a, see a jam band where um, you might actually achieve liftoff. Does that answer your question? Yes, completely. <laughs> <laughs> and I even just you explaining it, I have like goosebumps all over just like thinking about it. <laughs> and I and I miss it so much. I know. Right. You know that it. 
it reminds me of some things that have come up over our interviews so far. And, and one of them about with Reed was about, you know, being vulnerable. And what you were just talking about, Jay, made me think about how the music that we go to see for the most part, and I'm sure there are bands that are less on this side, but the bands that I love are the ones that are willing to step up and let their egos go and, and really be vulnerable in that experience together. And so we all come together, fans and musicians, and um, sometimes there's psychedelics that are happening or there's there's something that most of the time allows us to let go, to like kind of release that rigidity that we have from living as a human being. And so that allows that like magic to be possible. And plus there's, there's all of this that's coming into it. You know, this is a transcendent experience. It crosses the barriers of time and of space. And so, and I, I'm sure that there's something going on with the vibrations and everything that just kind of like opens up that portal for that magic to be able to happen. And I'm just curious from your experience of seeing, witnessing so many shows as a fan and then also as a documentarian of this experience, which I so appreciate. I'm so happy that we're going to have your photographs to be able to look back on. And, you know, centuries from now, whoever discovers them is going to be able to know what was happening in this time. But what do you see? What do you notice from fans and also from musicians when that magic does happen like what stands out to you as that telltale sign of like yes we've we've achieved liftoff we're here it's happening well essentially as a photographer we're trying to capture lightning in a bottle right because we're we're working in in fractions of seconds you know what am i looking for i'm looking for those peak moments whether it's a peak moment with a fan or a peak moment with an artist on stage or a combination of both. One of the most telling things about my pictures of deadheads is that there are no phones, right? And so there's no technology. So everybody that's there in those photographs of the, and you've seen my pictures of deadheads dancing, they're on the internet, they're on Facebook or whatever. Nobody is dancing so that they can be in a clip on social media tomorrow, right? Holding a beer, phone in one hand, a beer, you know what I mean? You know, selfie video, look at me at this festival. It was the most pure, most organic experience that you could possibly be a part of because they're, the only reason these people were doing it was for the pure joy and ecstasy of being in that moment with that music, with that band who you really loved so much, with those lyrics that meant so much to you and so much to your friends around you. And those lyrics that for some of us were the roadmap of changing our lives, you know, listening to the lyrics of let's say a Bob Dylan song in 1975 or 76 from blood on the tracks and, 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 and creating those visuals in our heads of those stories you know, or reading the electric Kool-Aid acid tests, right? And and being like, well, I want to get in a school bus and drive across the country with a bunch of whack job fucking hippies on psychedelics and blow people's minds in, you know, Kansas or Oklahoma or what, you know what I mean? And so we have these influences. So, you know, with the music and the lyrics and that moment and the pureness of it was, a for me, a really good launching pad. And now it's changed. And now there are phones and technology and we are connected in a different way. And some people are still dancing so they can be in a clip on social media tomorrow and, you know, share that with their friends. Aren't we cool? We were at this thing. But for a lot of people, you know, those phones are in their bags and their pockets and they're not taking pictures of what's up on stage. And they're in that moment because they're also looking to go through that portal that you talked about and, and have that transcendental experience with that music and with the people that are surrounding them. So, you know, when there's this, I have this photo that I love from playing in the sand, Dead and Co. And from last year and they're playing Terrapin and all these people are up on the rail and I know most of them. And, uh, you know, it's like, <clears throat> you know, inspiration, you know, and everybody's just like this, like arms in the air, you know, chin to the, to the sky, eyes closed, singing at the top of their lungs. And to me, 
that is the most beautiful thing in the world. And I want to fucking photograph it, man, because it's just hot and sexy and magical. And, you know, and that's what I'm looking for in my photographs. And whether it's, you know, O'Teal digging into a groove, because that's also hot and sexy and, and magical, right? Or Bob or Mickey and Billy locked in at, at the drum solo, you know? And so that's what I'm looking for. And that's what I'm trying to capture because I want people to look at my photographs, like you said, in, in 10, 20, 50, 200 years and really be able to see and experience what we are seeing and experiencing in real time, or as the kids say, in IRL, in real life. And um, hopefully understand that, you know, I'm hoping that our politicians, Mr. Trump hasn't destroyed the planet enough that this will, we will all still be around in 30 to 50 years, you know, to look back on this time and, and say, wow, wow, Woodstock was 100 years ago this week, you know. August of, you know, 2069, you know, wow, the summer of love was a hundred years ago. This, you know, this summer, June of, you know, 2067, right? I mean, think about it. Such a cultural zeitgeist that was so changing of the whole planet. And it all fucking happened at the crossroads of hate and Ashbury streets, just two little streets in our little neighborhood, 10 minutes from my house. Well, I hope that, well, I mean, aliens may or may not be here already. I don't know. But I hope they're looking at all of your books and your photographs for what the human race is really like, because then we'll be okay. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Certainly. It's certainly a glimpse because you know what? We may be the freaks and the misfits and the weirdos, but the hippies were right. The hippies were right about everything. They were right about the food. They were right about the environment. They were right about the music, they're right about the drugs, you know, but the punk rockers were also right about it all. But um, it's all good. All the punks, all the hippies, we're all the same people. Yeah. I'm wondering, because you're like, always capturing those moments of magic, the lightning in a bottle. And so I'm wondering, do you experience that magic too, when you're at the shows? Yeah, I mean, there are moments where I'll put my camera down for a second and be in that moment. But usually, those peak moments is when there's peak things going on that I want to photograph. So, but yeah, photography still turns me on, you know, when I capture that, when I know that I've got that shot, you know, like after I took the daytime bow shot at fairly well, where 70,000 people were screaming at the top of their lungs and the band was out there greeting the audience and thanking the audience. And they turned around to thank the 10,000 people behind the stage. And I got that photograph, which is, you know, the cover of the fairly well book. I mean, you know, I was just a 15 year old hippie at English town, New Jersey in 1977 at my first dead show. 38 years later, I'm the guy that's documenting the official 50th anniversary and ultimately creating the iconic photo that defined those that moment, you know, like they say, we've been, we've been training for this our whole lives. Right. And so when I get those photographs, you know, whether it's, you know, Leah dancing at Terrapin or Tara Leah gathering the vibes, looking radiant and beautiful and sexy and gorgeous. And in that moment that turns me on because I've succeeded at what I'm trying to do. Right. I'm not just trying to like take snapshots. I'm trying to leave a lasting document of, um, what we were all doing and experiencing. And now I've become that insider. So I'm doing it from the inside out as opposed to from the outside in, which is where you start as a fan and a friend. And, you know, the Grateful Dead, you were always allowed to bring a camera to a show. You didn't need a photo pass. You didn't need special credentials. So you were just allowed to bring your camera to the show. And I just brought it in and would take pictures of my friends. And my friends just happened to be a bunch of freaks that were on drugs looking for magic. Yeah. It's also like something you mentioned of that everybody has their cell phone nowadays. And I think that's a really like positive sign of the jam band community that like people have their phones in their bags more and are just surrendering to the moment instead of just like taking pictures of the show with their phone or selfieing themselves the whole time. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, that would be really hard to do your job, huh? Yeah. And, and listen, there's plenty of photos like that. And that's what it is now. And I'll document that as well, because it's part of the experience now. You know, we change, we evolve, change is a constant. And um, it is what it is. It is what it is. And that's okay. And I'm okay with that also. Life goes on. There are more photographs to take. There are more blissful moments. 
let's just get through this pandemic. Let's wear our masks. Let's get back to the garden because that's where we have the most fun. And I miss the magic. I miss the magic, you know, like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm here. I'm home. Had my kids around through part of the quarantine. You know, they live in other States, but they, we all quarantine here together for those first few months. And, but I think that ultimately for me, and I'm going to probably guess for both of you, because I know what you guys are like that we experience, well, you do your retreats and stuff, Charlie. So I'm sure that there's, those are very magical moments for you as well. Um, and I know Leah does different things with what she has going on in her life as well. But ultimately, that's where we go and recharge our batteries and our souls and get a different kind of electric blast in our souls that hopefully recharge us to let us go back and do other stuff where we have to pay our rent or our mortgage or our car payment or drive the kids to, in carpool to school on a Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. after you were at the Fillmore till one in the morning the night before or whatever. And uh, so, you know, we all miss music and we need to get back to the garden so that we can rekindle that because I want to fucking hug both of you guys. I don't want to like have to bump elbows with you. I want deep, deep, meaningful, soulful hugs from everybody that I know, you know? So let's all get the vaccine. Let's all go back and let's all just hug for a really long time because we need to. Yeah, I want to like awkwardly hug people for way too long <laughs> once this is back. Like I'm just going to be like hugging the whole time. Yeah, yeah, we miss that connection. We miss that magic. We miss that experience because, you know, fuck it. I'm a hippie, man. I like to hug, you know, like when I meet people for the first time, I'm like, huh, you know, you hug. I don't know. It's just like how we roll, right? You know, if, if all we did was, what the Jefferson airplane told us, you know, if you, you know, see someone, if you smile at them, they will understand, right? It's just so simple. You know, you smile at somebody walking down the street or at a festival and you're connected immediately, but you frown at them and they frown back. And it's, you know, it's just, I mean, you know, I've been telling my kids their whole lives, mean people suck, mean people suck, mean people suck, right? Treat people well, engage with people, and you will have a much better life always and forever. And the planet will be better. So first of all, I can so relate to what you were just saying, Jay, about being at the Fillmore super late and then, you know, having to be mommy in, in the next morning. And yeah, and we do that. And I love how you say it's a turn on because I, I totally agree. Like, it's such a turn on. That's what I think that's why we all go, you know, because it, it like just turns up that volume on the magnificence of life and, and we feel it so brightly and it just like can uh and even talking about it like i am so happy that we have been able to establish this podcast and get to talk to amazing people like you jay on a regular basis because this turns me on like just talking about it and thinking about it you know it's like gets those juices going and and just makes me feel so good so i just wanted to to come back to that because i don't think that people describe it as that as much and and i absolutely agree with you so thanks for that. And I'd love to, I mean, I've had the pleasure of being able to listen to your slideshows and your stories and you have amazing stories from your experiences photographing people and just your experience getting started in this amazing career that you've been able to create for yourself. But I'd love to hear, this is something that we ask a lot of guests, um, about your first experience with live music that really turned you on or really like after it, you were just like, yes, this, this is it. And maybe, maybe it was a psychedelic experience. Maybe I don't know what, what was involved, but I'd love to hear about that. And just like the, the elements of it, what it felt like, what you noticed. Well, my first concert was the Doobie brothers, the outlaws and Poco at Madison square garden and Halloween night in 1975. I was in ninth grade. We brought an ounce of green Mexican pot with us. We smoked the entire ounce and we got a headache, never got high. Uh, but that was pretty typical of the 1970s. And then uh, the next two shows that I saw were very close together. And one was the Eagles, who I loved, and uh, Jethro Tull. And those were both in 1976. And I remember my mother telling me um, when I said I was going to both of those concerts, she's like, you're going to go to two concerts in the same year? You know, and we laugh at that now because, you know, <laughs> here in the Bay Area, we're like, a, you know, in real in real life, in IRL, 
um, you know, we're a Terrapin and, and Sweetwater and the Fox and the Fillmore, you know, five nights a week. Right. So, you know, my mother's like, you can't be going to so many concerts because you will be corrupt. You know, you'll be a corrupt young juvenile delinquent. Well, of course, you know, I want to be a corrupt you know, juvenile delinquent. Of course, I want to smoke pot. And God forbid, if if, if rock and roll is going to lead to to sex, please take me. <laughs> let me go. You know, <laughs> you know that. I mean, we didn't have the internet to inform us when we were fifteen and sixteen years old, and fourteen years old in nineteen seventy five and seventy six and seventy seven. And uh, really, that's what we were looking for. We were looking for sex, drugs, and rock and roll because you know we thought that's what was cool, right? And unfortunately, you know, a lot of us did some really bad drugs because somebody said, oh, you have to try this, snort this white powder that's crystal THC. Oh, wow. THC, that's the thing in marijuana. Sure, we can snort that. But, you know, it was made in some, you know, biker's basement and, you know, or by the prison in New Jersey. So, you know, there were some casualties. And, and uh, but, you know, we were chasing that feeling. We were chasing that experience. And like I said, I think that it all changed with the Grateful Dead for me because that's when I found my people and that's when I found my experience. I mean, you know, when I found myself in my TV room at my mother's house in suburban New Jersey, because the only tape deck in the house was in that, that room, right? I had a turntable in my bedroom with a stereo, but not a tape deck. And I was listening to a, a bootleg Grateful Dead tape from 1969. And I was dancing by myself, you know, flailing around in this, you know, at, at 17 years old, you know, there was clearly something wrong with me. And, um, but, you know, we didn't know it. I mean, back then when we were smoking pot, you know, our parents felt that we needed to go to rehab and they thought we needed to go see a counselor. And they thought that we should, you know, I know people who went on dead tour and their parents locked them up in homes because, you know, they were going to see the Grateful Dead when they were 16 and 17 years old and doing drugs and having sex and, and things like that. And their parents didn't agree. And they were, you know, they were literally sent away to homes for crazy people. And it's terrible and it's sad. And so... God, I just, I'm, I go on these tangents. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Your question, rock and roll, it, you know, Grateful Dead, you know, that's when it really changed. I think not, certainly not my first show, but you know, the first, I saw the Jerry Garcia band before I saw the Grateful Dead in July of 1977. And my friend who took me was two years older than me. He brought a camera and we developed some prints in his, in a basement of a friend's house who had a dark room. And for me, that was like, whoa, like here's the Jerry coming out of the primordial ooze of this dark room chemical, you know, and that's what was like, okay, I'm bringing a camera to my next concert, you know? So for me, it was a combination of like photography and music and rock and roll and drugs and, you know, the fantasy of maybe somebody will have sex with us. And, and, uh, you know, eventually all those things came true and they kept coalescing into this little crystal ball that just kept throwing off more sparks and, you know, different things would happen. And, you know, we were just trying to find that spark that would, you know, ignite into a blaze and fuel our souls for a lifetime of, you know, rock and roll, basically. And it worked. (laughs) (laughs) And here you are talking to us about it now. (laughs) And here we are, you know, who knew, like, you know, 40 years ago when we were, you know, staring at the album cover of Wake of the Flood on LSD on a snow day that I was looking at that album cover saying, someday I'm going to be on the Osiris Network talking to Tara Lee and Leah about, you know, what it's like to be in the groove, the groove of the therapy, you know, like, what the fuck, you know, like, come on, right? Who the fuck knew? Who fucking knew, you know? So did I I answer your question, maybe sort of somewhere in there? Yeah, you did. And I I love how it includes so many different elements. So that's lovely. Thanks. Yeah, you tied you brought it together perfectly. (laughs) That's what's so great. I love your tangents, because they're always so interesting. And like, I learned something new from all of them. But then you somehow always bring it back together. And it all makes sense. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's the therapy part of the groove. First, you get it, you find the groove. Well, I think it's you, you look for the groove, you get into the therapy, and then you get back to the to the groove, and then it all kind of ties it together, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's like the music that we love so much. Yeah. And I love how like one of the things was like the hopes of getting laid. And then now here you are, a professional photographer that has shot all of your favorite musicians. Right. Who knew? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll would lead to this. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God, right? Right. yes well i'm looking forward to seeing you in the garden again and hugging for an awkward amount of time and having one of those amazing soul hugs that i just crave so much and 
it'll be hopefully soon. Thank you, Jay. All right, everybody. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. So at the end of the interview, we lost audio with Jay. So I am going to fill you guys in on how to find him and what he said to say goodbye. So Jay says that if you see him at a show, please go up and say hi to him because it really enriches his life to interact with everybody and he loves meeting new cool people. So definitely if you see Jay around at the show, say hi, give him a big hug when we can hug and tell him that you found out about him on the Groove Therapy podcast or maybe you've been a fan for a while. But if you want to check out Jay's work, then definitely go to his website, rockoutbooks.com. That's rockoutbooks.com. All of his books are up there. He has books on The Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia and San Francisco and The Scene. He also has a book, which is my favorite, called Hippie Chick, which we mentioned a couple of times in the interview And if you haven't checked that out and you are a female jam band fan, you really should. The uh, caption of it is a tale of love, devotion, and surrender. And actually, it is written by our guest that is coming up in our next episode, Edith Johnson, which is really exciting. So check out Hippie Chick, especially if you're a female or love females in the scene. It's so gorgeous. And the words are just so fantastic. So you can also find Jay at Facebook at Jay Blakesburg Photography. And on Instagram, he is just Jay Blakesburg. So please like and share his photos on socials. You know, always credit him with the photograph. But if you want to share it with some friends and say, hey, look at this picture, isn't it amazing? Or this is how I feel when I am seeing live music. Jay has so many amazing crowd shots and they just capture the moment so perfectly. Just like he was saying that lightning in a bottle, he does an amazing job at capturing that. So coming up, Jay has some new projects that he's working on. He is working on a new book. He's working on a photo project He's got a documentary film that he is doing with his son, and he's also looking forward to getting back to his photo presentations again when we can safely gather. Those are usually pretty intimate, so hopefully they'll be back sooner than later. And we thank Jay so much for coming on. And Tara Lee, what did you think about the interview? That was just such a lovely conversation. And I just love Jay so much. And I love all of his stories and just everything he talked about. It was super inspiring. And just like all of our guests, I'm just like so inspired after I talk to them. I know. Absolutely. It leaves me of a feeling of just feeling so good and so turned on and so excited about life and live music and Gosh, what a gift to be able to have yeah. that. And I just love how he talked about like kind of in music and like that photograph still shooting photos for him is something that turns him on. And it's just that it like lights him up in life. And it just had me thinking about the things that I'm doing and like, are they lighting me up in life still? And and that's just such a good mm-hmm. way to like look at what is in alignment for you and what isn't. Because some things that you might just be doing because you're really good at, but like, does it turn you on? That's such a good question. Yeah. And Jay is such an inspiration in that because, you know, his career has been built upon really following that, following that turn on, following that bliss and and being able to make money at it and to be really, you know, just such a highly regarded concert photographer, like he's the go-to guy, you know, certainly up there at the top. I can't even imagine. Yeah. any. I can't think of anybody who I would put yeah, above him. Definitely not. And he's like, yeah. I, how he described it, that he's also an anthropologist. I thought yes. that was so cool because that is, and I'm just like, wow, like in 
300 years from now, hopefully the human race still exists, and that they'll be looking back at all the books that he published and all of his photographs, and they'll really be able to see like what it was like in that time. Because I love looking back at his pictures before I was able to go to concerts, because he's a little bit older than me, and looking back at those photos and being like, just imagining what life was like at that time. And it's it's really so interesting and so cool. And what he's doing is just so important beyond like a photograph it's history yeah yeah i just totally got like caught up in my mind too as you were saying that i mean i know we had this conversation with jay and we've been talking about how he calls himself a cultural anthropologist but i was just like totally struck by the fact that when i moved to california i wanted to go to uc berkeley and i wanted to be a cultural anthropologist because I was just so curious about different cultures and things like that. And I, I wanted to go into photojournalism. I even visited like the school of journalism and tried to see myself there. And and then I realized that I had no, <laughs> no experience in taking photos <laughs> at that point in my life when I was in my twenties and maybe it wasn't too late to start, but Jay gets to do that. And then here I am getting to talk to him and have this conversation about how we can really document this experience. And that certainly feels like part of my life's work too. And certainly what we're doing here on this podcast, you know, having this audio documentation of what the experience of live music is life and how important it is to people's lives, our lives, our listeners' lives, our interviewees' lives, and all of that. So it just kind of came full circle. Yeah, to me. it'll be so interesting in a couple of years from now when people go back and listen to the podcasts that were recorded during this time and be like, oh, yeah, remember those pandemic days and <laughs> like what that was like and how live music stopped, but people were still being really creative and innovative to do it in a safe and interesting way and how cool that was. And so these podcasts and photographs and like everything is just really important because it's documenting what life was like during the present time. Yes, absolutely. And certainly it's very different right now than it has been. And a lot of the major themes of live music, we haven't necessarily been able to experience like we have before in this year. Yeah. And I think you're going to tell us a little bit more about in your special section. <laughs> That's right. So for the... Did you know... I wanted to just kind of highlight Jay's mention of how he is a cultural anthropologist, well, a visual anthropologist for himself, and how he is is helping to document this such important experience that we all know and love and so intimately. And I was kind of taken back to this book that I found while I was doing my research on live music, and it's called Dancing in the Street, and it's by Barbara Ehrenreich. And she really details kind of over time our experience and connection and desire for collective joy, collective ecstasy, and how, you know, so many indigenous societies had rituals and this combination of what she calls in one of her chapters, the sacred and the profane, which I love because if you think about the live music that we go to see and the experience that we all know and love, it certainly has aspects of both sacred and profane. And I can't think of any other spiritual place that encompasses the range of spiritual and sacred and profane than the live music that we go to see. So I would love to hear from you guys about your thoughts on that. Have you ever thought about kind of the encapsulation of the sacred and the profane in this experience that we love? And if so, what do you think about that? Do you love that? I think you probably do. I know I do. And I think that that's one of the reasons that I'm drawn to it. So I'm really curious about that. Also in the book, Dancing in the Streets, Barbara really documents our history as human beings from really celebrating this experience of collective joy, collective 
ecstasy and our our need and our desire for it for healing and for experience that turn on that aliveness in our lives and then how for a large period of time it was really taken away from us and you know certainly even like right when rock and roll came into being you know if you think back to that time the 50s and the 60s when it was parents were telling their children like don't go to concerts and and even jay mentions that too from his parents and and yet there was this like deep desire within ourselves to follow that and to know how important it was so i just i feel like we're coming full circle in remembering the importance of these rituals and these letting go in a sense of like coming back to our wholeness. And it's not just about, you know, how productive can we be and how much can we get done and how proper can we be? But it's really about like um, being able to let go and to experience our wholeness and, and certainly, you know, psychedelics or alcohol or some something that allows us to be able to let loose in an easy way is is a part of the rock and roll experience so that we can allow ourselves to loosen up because we had so many years and decades of people telling us that we needed to be proper and to not let go. And so I think it makes total sense that substances have found a place into that experience to be able to allow people to let go and to expand their minds so that they can find that oneness. And she also talks about the Dionysus rituals, reminded me of, I don't know if you guys knew this, but Joseph Campbell attended a Grateful Dead show in Oakland. And for anybody who's not familiar with Joseph Campbell, he talks about the hero's journey and and talks a lot about myth, but there's a quote from Joseph Campbell from the Grateful Dead show that he attended, and he said, I got something there that made me note that this is magic, and it's magic for the future. They hit a level of humanity that makes everybody at one with each other. I was carried away in rapture, and so I am a deadhead now. And that was from Joseph Campbell on seeing the Grateful Dead in Oakland in 1986. Well, heck yeah. And I've experienced exactly what he's talking about hundreds and hundreds of times at all the live shows that I've gone to. And so for my section. Daily Jam. I'm going to talk about how you can kind of bring that magic into your home now, especially when there's not the possibility to gather in large groups and experience that like collective ecstasy peak experience, lightning in a bottle, as Jay explained it together. And so you're, it's going to be really hard to exactly feel that same way because, as I said, there's like nothing like when you are in a group of people, but we're going to try and attempt it and I want to see how it goes for you. And so my suggestion is, is that you find a song that really like can put you into a trance and bring you to that place, whether it is a Grateful Dead song or maybe like Zach Gill's Cocktail Yoga has been doing that for me lately and also Reed Mathis's Electric Beethoven totally like can bring me to that place. Trey's Ghost of the Forest, like you can listen to the live albums of that and that brings me to that place. So whatever it is for you that will bring you into a trance, I want you to pick that album, that live show, that live song, however much time you have. If you have a lot of time to dedicate to this, awesome. But if you have five minutes to dedicate to this, great too. And find a safe space where you can let go, whether it's like going outside in the woods or maybe it's like in your bathroom or in your bedroom or in your living room, somewhere where you're safe where you can feel free to let go, where maybe people aren't watching (laughs) you and you just feel safe to like turn yourself on in a non-sensual way (laughs) Um, or maybe it is. It's whatever, (laughs) whatever you want. And um Put on the music, close your eyes, maybe light a candle, use some essential oils, like really set the scene and just start moving your body to the music and get down and have an ecstatic experience. Like don't worry about what you look like 
or anything. You're just like, you're dancing like no one's watching. Or my other saying is dancing like everyone's watching, but you don't care. And you are just going to get down and have that ecstatic experience, that lightning in a bottle peak moment, and try to have it at home while you're here. And I would love to hear about it. So let us know how that went in the Facebook group, which is the Groove Therapy Podcast community. And I want to hear all about it, what you did, what you were listening to, and where you were. Yes. And we'll all support ourselves in having those collective joy experiences on our own, but yet still connected because we are connected, even if we're separate right now. And as I just said in the did you know like this is so important to us and so while we can't do it in person right now to still honor the fact that we have that desire we have that impulse we still need that medicine of it and Tara Lee just gave us a great way to be able to do that on our own so I hope you guys will take advantage of that yeah and just like in history there's been the times like you said that it's been taken away from us Mm -hmm. but it's still in there And it comes back. And so don't worry. The big collective experiences that we can have together will come back. But for now, we just need to do it in our house, like channeling into the collective energy of everybody around the world. Yes, absolutely. And we'll be right there with you. And yeah, can't wait to hear about it. Yes. So please... If you like our podcast, then hopefully you do if you listen this long. Otherwise, you're just torturing yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And we don't want you to do that. Yes. So I'm, I'm guessing that you like us. And if that is true, then please share. You could subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and share with everyone you know. We're also on Spotify. You could share the links with people and leave a review. And if you do, we will likely read it on the air and then you'll be famous. So that's really great. Check out all the other podcasts on Osiris. Um, We are part of the Osiris Podcast Network and that is Osiris Pod. And follow us on Instagram at Groove Therapy Podcast. And I think that's all the things. Is that all the things? That's all the things for our Groove Therapy Podcast. Yeah. And what about you? What if people want to hear more about you? Oh, yes. So actually, I have some things going on and you can best find them, I would say, on Instagram. So if you follow me, I'm at Rocking Life with two underscores after and I share tons of stories. I make all these really fun reels. I have really fun posts and everything is inspiring and uplifting and has to do with using music as a manifesting tool. And I would love to help you to manifest the life of your dreams using the powerful effects of music. So check me out on Instagram and you can find out everything that I'm up to. And there's definitely a bunch of things that are happening in January. So definitely check me out. And what about you, Leah? Yeah. So you guys can find me also on Instagram at Dr. Leah Taylor on Facebook at the Dr. Leah Taylor page, and also at my website at embodiedgroove.com. And for the new year, I have a super special guided meditation called Way of Being in 2021. I record these pretty much every year as just a tool to help you get in touch with how you want to be in the coming year. And I feel like it's more important now than ever because I think we've all had the opportunity to really get more intentional in our being. So this is a tool to just kind of help to guide you through that. It's about 10 minutes long, so not too long. And you can pick that up on my website by going to embodiedgroove.com. Yay. So many ways to connect with us and the community and all the wonderful things that are happening. And we love you all so much and happy 2021. (laughs) Did I say that right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Here we are. 2021. Yay. Yay. (laughs) And we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.